in your bulletins, the scripture, Luke 22, 24, starting with 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. We'll end there. Uh, Easter next week, and we have been uh, going through uh, the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, wonderful season for that, to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the center, it is the center of our faith. In uh, church history, they used to have things called lectionaries, and uh, they were written in Greek. And uh, the Greek churches would then use those readings, and they would collect various scriptures and put them together in different orders for you to read uh, the scriptures. And it's interesting that uh, the Gospels tend to be the most prevalent readings in the history of the church. And the part of the Bible read the least was Revelation. And in fact, uh, we have less manuscripts, Greek manuscripts of the book of Revelation than any other book in the Bible. And uh, maybe because it was written last, maybe because it was hard to understand, uh, but uh, we have lots of the Gospels. They were copied the most, they were read the most, they were used the most, and uh, there's good reason. It's about Jesus. And that's what our faith is about. And so every year I encourage a congregation, you should read one of the Gospels, uh, for Easter time, you should read the last week of Jesus' life. Six or seven chapters take you 15 minutes to half an hour. And uh, just something you should do every Easter um, to remember what is most important to our faith. Um, we are in chapter 22 and verse 24. And I've entitled this section, A New Kind of Leader. A New Kind of Leader. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among, I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Hard to believe that at the Last Supper, uh, the disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest. Jesus has just said, this is my body, eat in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And now they're arguing about who will be the greatest. It's funny, they're not even arguing about who will be greatest, but who seems to be the greatest, who is perceived to be the greatest. And I think they're saying things like this. Peter, James, and John. We got to see the transfiguration. We're better than the rest of you. Or Peter and John are saying, we got to prepare the Passover. We're better than the rest of you. Thomas is saying, well, of course you had to prepare the Passover because you're the least of us. We make you do all the work. Judas is saying, I'm the most important. I've got the money. And they have these arguments. Who is the greatest? And Jesus responds, verse 25. The way of the world, the kings of the Gentiles, exercise lordship. They love telling people what to do. They love being at the top and making pronouncements about what's going to happen. They're over them. And they like to take great titles. Benefactors. Literally means good workers. They love the titles and the phrases that make them look good. Some of them are ridiculous. Last year we talked about uh, the King of England, the Queen of England. Henry VIII wrote against Martin Luther. And when he wrote against Martin Luther, the Pope said, you're the defender of the faith, and gave him that title, defender of the faith. And then Henry VIII pulled the church out of the Roman Catholic Church. So the Pope says, I'm taking the title away. So Parliament voted to give him that title, Henry VIII, defender of the faith. We're talking about Henry VIII, <laughs> defender of the faith, right? You know, you know Henry VIII. How many wives did he have? Okay. You know he had a lot of wives. Crazy. Of course, the Queen of England, that is still her title. Defender of the faith. Uh, Queen Elizabeth probably is a believer, probably is a Christian. Prince Charles is not a believer. And uh, he wants to change the title if he gets the crown. To instead of defender of the faith, to defender of faith. Um, still ridiculous, ridiculous title. They give themselves titles to make themselves look good. And Jesus said, my followers will not be like that. By the way, we call those who work in government public servants. Right? Public servants. As if they're doing it for free. As if it's hard labor. Right? But, but you give that title, sounds good. And Jesus said, we're not going to give these nice-sounding titles to ourselves. Instead, he says, the leader is one who serves. It's more pronounced in the Gospel of John. Here's what Jesus says in that Gospel. Whoever loves his life loses it. 
Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then in chapter 13, he strips down. Strips down to his underclothes. And then he goes around the table and he washes their feet, striking. And then he explains it. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. And if I then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Washing feet is kind of the worst job. Jesus calls us as his followers to wash people's feet. Or in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think Jesus washing their feet is just a taste and a picture of what he will do the next day as he strips off his clothes and he washes their feet and he serves each one of them and he cleans their feet. It's a picture that he will go to the cross and there he will be stripped and he will serve each and every one of us on that cross. I love uh, that the University of Virginia Cavaliers won the NCAA basketball championship April the 8th. I'm a basketball player. My favorite time of the year, March Madness. Best sports day of the year is when uh, 32 teams play on the Thursday and then 32 teams play on the Friday. Wonderful. Many times I've listened to Tony Bennett. Last year, his team was ranked number one. They lost the first day. First time it had ever happened. How does number one lose to number 64? <laughs> and I listened to him. And kindness oozed out of his interview. One of the most respectful coaches I've ever heard. And I thought, he's different. I go, he must be a Christian. And I thought, I've I got to find out. I go, I hope he's a Christian. <laughs> or else it destroys my whole world view that Christians are different. Sure enough, he is a Christian. Came to faith as a young man. He led his parents to the Lord. His father was a basketball coach in a university. He went on to play for his father. He went on and played in the NBA for a few years. He then traveled around the world, played professional basketball. His wife traveled with him. And then he became a coach. And he decided he would build a basketball program based on the Bible. So he came up with five pillars to his program. Unity, passion, thankfulness, humility, and servanthood. And he said, this is what my program's going to be out. And so when he recruits kids, he goes, this is what it's about. You're going to be thankful. We're going to play as a team. We're going to have unity. We're going to have passion. We're going to have humility. And we're going to serve others. He sat on the locker room wall. He's had many interviews in the press. They've talked about it. At first they were skeptical. Can you build a winning basketball program based on the Bible? Then they asked him, what is the most important trait? Now, he's, he thinks the most important one is humility. Humility. 
It's not all about me. Focus on the family has also picked up on his five pillars. (laughs) Humility. Know who you are and know who you're not. In other words, don't think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. Right? Don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. And Tony Bennett says, conceit is a cancer. But then servanthood, which is what we're talking about today, servanthood. He said, you should always be thinking about how you can help the other person. And so he has his basketball players go to elementary schools and go to the poor clubs in the city, always trying to help someone else in their city. It's one of the pillars, should be one of the pillars of my life and your life. Humility and servanthood. So here are some applications. Number one, servants are those who get rid of their judgmental attitudes and ranking of servants. Jesus says, who is the greater one, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Of course, people think it's the one who gets served. But Jesus says we should be the ones who are serving. Number two, Jesus wants husbands and fathers who are servants. Husbands and fathers are servants. Um, Jeremy, do you know how to work a vacuum cleaner? Okay, good. Do you know how to fold laundry? Okay, you do, okay. I hate making the bed. You know I'm being a servant when I make the bed. (laughs) Uh, Jesus wants husbands and fathers who will help and serve, serve their wife and serve their family. He wants wives and mothers who are servants. It takes place in the family. Number three, he wants church leaders who are servants. I've been saddened to see a friend of mine, James McDonald, go through tough times, be kicked out of his church and have real problems. And now it seems they're discussing who owns his sermons. His sermons are worth a lot of money. I suspect he has a contract that says the sermons are his, and the church wants to say that the sermons are theirs. And so now they're going to have a contract dispute about who owns those sermons. My favorite preacher, writer, and scholar is John Piper. And so if you sign into the website here at our church on your phone or your device, the sign-in is Piper, yes. So who's the best Christian writer? Piper. Is John Piper the best Christian writer? Yes. So Piper, yes, and you can sign into our web, into our uh, Wi-Fi. Anyways, every every week before I preach, I, I I like to read five sermons on the passage I'm preaching on, just to get an idea how have other how have other people handled it. And I always go to his website first, and he has every sermon that he's ever preached in print on his website. Makes it very handy. Just look up Luke 22. Boom, there's the sermon. I can quickly read it. Not only that, John Piper has written about 100 books. I own 10 of them. You can read them for free online. Or, if you want to own one and can't afford it, you can simply write to them and they will send you one for free. Why? Because he wants to be a servant. He wants to be a servant. Jesus wants church leaders who serve. Number four, Jesus wants Christians in the marketplace who are servants. 
That's your business in place of work. Christians should be the best employees because not only do we want our employer to get the best benefit and the best, the best service for the dollar they're giving us, but we want to help other, employee, other employees succeed as well. And Jesus wants followers in the church who are servants of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So a new kind of leader, Jesus wants servants. Point number two, the best Christians are still sinners. The best Christians are still sinners. Notice verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And my NIV, that you is plural. I think uh, the modern, I think the one in your bulletin, does it say you all? All of you. Okay, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And Satan's busy in the upper room. He's entered into Jesus, and as Jesus is speaking with his disciples, Satan is right there. And he must be laughing when he hears the disciples arguing with each other. He's going, this is great. But he has more plans. He wants to take Peter and the other disciples, and he wants to sift them and try to get rid of their faith. Now, I don't know how to, how to sift things that well. I know sometimes recipes call for it. You put the flour in the sieve. You've got to jiggle it a little bit. Is that right? Jiggle it a little bit so the flour comes down through the cracks. Well, that's what Satan's doing with you and with the disciples. He puts you in there, and then he's going to jiggle you around a little bit so that he can get that faith out of there. And he's got many ploys to sift out your faith. One of the big ones that he uses today is cultural irrelevance. We have a culture that is dead set against Christians and against faith. Satan loves that. He's just using that to sift you. Let's get rid of their faith. Make Christianity more and more irrelevant. Or he has many faith choices. Or Christian leaders and followers who fail. Or hard times both generally, personally, or persecution, or material possessions. All of these things he uses to sift you so that he can get rid of your faith. But Jesus prays for Peter that his faith will not fail. I love that. If Jesus prays for Peter, maybe you should pray for the person sitting beside you that their faith will not fail. Right? That's one way to keep our faith from failing. Prayer for someone else. Notice that our moral failures are not final. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love that. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know something, Peter? I know you're going to fail and Satan's going to test you. But when you come back, I want you to help everybody else because they're struggling too. God wants to use you again. God wants to use you still. And the person who has turned away and come back, maybe that's the person in the best position to strengthen those who are failing. Well, Peter hears this. And notice his reply. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. 
Lord, I'm ready. I wrote number one, he's not ready. (laughs) We are often overconfident of our own spirituality. It's not as strong as we think it is. Given the right circumstances and the right pressures, we're all in trouble. Or number two, we don't know ourselves as well as we should. We estimate our spiritual strength because spiritually we are always weak. Strength comes from the Lord and from the Spirit, not from us. And number three, spiritual pride is a real problem. In Mark, Peter says this, even if they all fall away, I will never fall away. Lord, I don't know about these other 11 guys you've got. (laughs) I can see that they might fall away. I've got doubts about them myself. (laughs) But I will never fall away. I'm way more committed than they are. And of course, this is one of the most incredible prophecies in the Bible. Verse 34. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Incredible prophecy. Notice what Jesus knows. He knows who will deny him. He knows that it will happen. Not that it's a possibility. He knows that it will happen. He knows when it will happen. Before the night is over. Before the rooster crows, it will happen. He knows how many times it will happen. Three times. He knows how Peter will fall away. He will deny him. He knows that Peter will not lose his faith, but instead be strengthened in his faith and commitment and come back. And he knows what will cause this to happen. Incredible prophecy. What Jesus knows. One of the, this is a bunny trail, one of the great theological questions is how can we have free will if God knows what we're going to do, right? It's hard to wrap your mind around that. How am I free if he knows what I'll do? I'll let you think about that this week. But it seems, it seems he knows what will happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows how it's going to happen. He knows when it's going to happen, how often it's going to happen. Uh, that's part of the greatness of God. And finally, be prepared for hard times. Be prepared for hard times. Verse 35. When I sent sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? No. But he said, now if you have a purse, take it. Also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are the two swords. That's enough. The idea was that when he sent them out before to evangelize, they were supposed to take nothing. And those who heard were supposed to help you, provide for you. But now Jesus says something different is happening. Now it's hard times and it's opposition. Be prepared for it. It's going to be tough. You won't have any friends. Nobody's going to help you. And it's going to be bad. So you better have money and you better have a knapsack, and you better have a sword. They hear that. 
And what they take from that is, we better get a sword. They go, hey, we got two swords. And I don't think Jesus means for them to take it literally. He says, listen, the hard times are coming and they're on you now. Be prepared. And their idea is, well, we got the swords, we're prepared. You're not prepared. It doesn't matter if you have 12 swords. You're not prepared. And he gives, and he tells why. Why is it going to be so bad and so tough? And verse 37 is a for, or a because. Because it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Why do they have to be prepared? Because Jesus Christ will be considered a criminal. And they're going to count him as a great sinner. In other words, I must die. Here's Isaiah 53, 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, I'm going to die and I'm going to be considered a sinner. And you're going to be considered one along with me. I love the rest of that verse from Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet... He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beautiful prophecy. They'll consider him to be terrible, a terrible person, a great sinner and a criminal. Yet even while they consider that, he is actually carrying their sin. Carrying the sin of many. He's saying this must be fulfilled in me. The disciples, in their obtuseness, see, Lord, here are two swords. <laughs> they don't get it. Jesus, I think, kind of just goes, that's good enough. <laughs> that's all we need. A book came out just this week, the last couple weeks, called The 21. A Journey into the Land of Coptic Martyrs. A German writer saw the image of those 21 cops who were beheaded in, on the seashore. And he wanted to go and learn about their faith. And so he wrote a book about going to Egypt and meeting all of the families of those 21 martyrs and learning about their story and their history. The Coptic church in Egypt has a rich history. That's where monasticism was born first place to have monasteries. That's where the doctrine of the Trinity was first debated and where the greatest defender of Trinitarian faith, Athanasius, he was from Egypt. When the rest of the Western world began to date things from the birth of Christ, and that was in the 6th century, that's when they changed the dating to 1 AD or 1 BC, the Coptic church didn't change. The dating for their church, year one, is 284 A.D. That's the year of the great persecution against the church. And they remember that persecution. That's their first year. From the 7th century, when Muslims conquered the country, uh, they have had centuries of persecution. When the Muslims conquered the country, they destroyed thousands of churches. It was one of the most Christianized places on the planet, Egypt. 
In fact, it was a center of Christian learning and uh, very important to the Christian church. They killed many monks, raped many nuns, and for centuries imposed a tax on Christians, which is Sharia law. And the Coptic church had dwindled and dwindled and dwindled until the 1950s. The Suez Canal changed things for that church. Brought in missionaries from the West. And uh, Egypt itself began to flower again. Egypt was just a basket case. And the church began to flower again. And they re-embraced their spiritual heritage and Jesus Christ. And they re-embraced being persecuted for Christ. That hard times are what it means to follow Christ. And so the 21 men, they were all ready for their deaths. Many of them were illiterate. Very difficult for a Coptic Christian to have a good education. You're not going to get a job where your education is worthwhile, so many cops don't get an education. Uh, some could read, and yet those who read could not write. And they were killed on purpose. They were killed to terrorize people so that people would not want to be a Coptic and would not want to be a Christian. But that's not what, that's not what has happened. These families are not angry. They don't want revenge. They're not even asking for justice. They are simply glad that these husbands and these fathers were faithful to Jesus Christ to the end. Jesus was killed to stamp out a movement. That's why he was killed. And for three days it worked. But Jesus had seen it coming. And he told his disciples they need to be ready. Get your wallet, your backpack, and your sword because it will be hard. <laughs>